Today on the FYA interview series, we've got one of my favorite people on earth. It is Kat Bacritchie, and uh, Kat is a lifelong Memphian. She uh, works now for the Memphis Teacher Residency, where she is also a graduate, and um, worked for years in education, uh, still working there now. And on top of that, Kat also uh, works with the Moms to Man Action Group. She's in charge of the Memphis chapter of that. We'll get into all of what they do and who they are, um, as well as just talk about uh, maybe some advice. There's some things that Kat's got to think about for people who are uh, in that young adult season of life. Uh, super interesting interview, and we're, we're glad that she was able to join us today. Uh, hope you enjoy it. Check it out. Kevin Critchie. All right, welcome to the FYA interview series. We're here with Kat McRitchie today, and um, Kat has been a longtime friend of ours. And uh, when I think about, uh, Kat, what you've brought to our friendship over the years, I think of, of uh, amongst most of those things, just Memphis knowledge and, and being always one step ahead of us on like, um, not just new things that are here, but like the history of Memphis and all of that. Um, so why don't you tell us about growing up here and, um, and talk, to, talk about your childhood a little bit, like where you grew up, um, what your family was like, all that. Sure. Um, so I grew up in Midtown Memphis in the 80s, uh, 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 the Coliseum and uh, wrestling days of Memphis history, uh, uh, an illustrious decade if ever there was one. Um, For sure. And um, my dad would, ran the trauma center here in Memphis, which was at the time the third busiest trauma center in the country because it was the only wow. one sort of whole region. Yeah. Um, and so I would say one thing I I've grew up there's I've got three brothers and a sister so they're a busy busy family. Um, what I like to tell people about growing up in Memphis in the '80s in my family was that um, my dad saw sort of the most traumatic worst parts of Memphis um, in his job. But my parents always I and a lot of people who grew up in Memphis in the '80s have really negative experiences and views yeah. of Memphis. And I never, I didn't know that people didn't love Memphis until I was like in college. And I was like, what do you mean? This is the <laughs> best city in the world. And it was funny because my parents always, uh, like always spoke well of the city and like our, like we always went downtown and we would just do different yeah. things. And I never knew that Memphis wasn't the greatest place in the world, but also, my parents didn't grow up here and so we always were raised with sort of like you might stay here or you might go somewhere else and it wasn't sort of necessarily home forever and ever um yeah. so I think one of the more, more interesting things about my way I was raised is that I was raised the great like uh like an asset-based mindset of Memphis but also not Memphis wasn't the center of the universe and I have discovered that those are like not not a common combination yeah. Yeah. That is super interesting. I mean, I, I feel like, um, my uncle's in Cincinnati, for example, and has been a firefighter forever, um, and is a habitual Cincinnati basher because of that. And so, um, when you talk about poverty with him, like you immediately dive off a cliff because he's just been, um, through his job serving the, the most difficult cases in the city for years and years. And so it's interesting that your dad was, why do you think that was that way? Like, why do you think they, they still like the city so much? I don't know. I think a lot of it has to do just with their own upbringing. They, um, my dad grew up in a farm town in Ohio and 
my grandparents were always just like positive people. Um, my grandmother was always doing for everybody. And my grandfather was always just doing the next right thing before it was made popular by Elsa, Princess Elsa. And my mom was like, just grew up in a blue collar town in Michigan and they just sort of always made do. And so I think that they just had this like, make the best of where you are and be a part yeah. of where you are like in their upbringing. And so um, then they just brought that. I think my parents, neither of my parents has like a strong faith background. And so for a long time, I resented that, like that, you know, I saw all these friends with evangelical backgrounds or high faith backgrounds yeah. and I always, and I resented that, but the older I get, the more I realize these other sorts of worldviews that actually are very biblically themed. And yeah. I just am now realizing sort of this, my own faith narrative and my upbringing, like actually have a lot more overlap than maybe in my twenties yeah. I was aware of. Yeah, that is super interesting to me. And so to, uh, what was the point for you? How, how did you get introduced to, to uh, well, I'll say Jesus, because I know you were in church a lot growing up, but yeah. not but not like a, a Protestant church, right? Yeah, well, so I, uh, I have a very uh, stereotypical Southern <laughs> salvation story, which is hysterical since you know me. Right. Uh, <laughs> I was saved at a Baptist summer camp in Arkansas. <laughs> praise, praise his name. Praise his name. See, God, that's how. <laughs> all the ways. You know that, that movie was out, out a few years ago? Like, literally, that's my sort of faith origin story of that this, like, hilarious. aha moment. Right. When I go back and think about my story beforehand. I sort of see all of these. <laughs> well, the Catholics call it prevenient grace, which is the yeah. act of God and of grace to you before you were like able to respond to him. And so I could tell you lots and lots of examples of prevenient grace, but yeah. that salvation moment was an old Baptist summer camp in Arkansas. <laughs> the only thing that would be more surprising about that than to me is if it was like with your cheerleading squad, like that's the <laughs> only thing that could. <laughs> no worries there. <laughs> I was the most cool spirited in high school, but I was not a cheerleader. Well, I've been to a Grizz game with you, so that that connects to me. Like um, that, which side note, hearing hearing your mom at a Grizz game might even be the, <laughs> might be the only thing better than hearing you at a Grizz game because uh, it becomes clear where all your passion comes from. <laughs> oh, she's committed. Your passion for injustice has started. <laughs> like, oh yes, no, through which, that for sure. The worst was it, my brother's wrestling matches growing up. My mom would video if the guy who did the video wasn't there and you'd hear, go, John, go, rip his leg off. And you're like, mom, chill out. <laughs> <laughs> so the video, you could see anything in the wrestling, but it was classic because my mom's video <laughs> skills and commentary and commitment to cheering was an inestimable. That, that is awesome. And, yeah. and also that a 100% transferred right to you. <laughs> um, okay so when you were now you you grew up in private school and then you shifted to public school tell us about that decision and why why you said why you wanted to go to public school after being in private school growing up yeah so I went to catholic school went to IC grade school through the seventh grade and it's more complicated than is worth telling for school transitions yeah but I played the violin growing up 
And I was part of the youth orchestra and I had a lot of friends that were in public school, specifically at White Station. And so I um, basically just begged my parents to let me go to White Station when I was in the eighth grade and they let me. And I was the first Fabian to not go to private school. And I mean, my grandma thought I was going to hell straight away because I wasn't going to Catholic school. Oh, wow. She has that in common with the Baptist grandmas. Um, I never knew it was that big of a deal in your family for that. Oh, no, it was a huge deal. Wow. So, well, uh, shout out to your parents then for allowing, like, for letting that happen. Yeah, they were yeah. pretty awesome. And I and think then, that, that was, of all the decisions that they made for me, sort of the most personally transformational hmm. uh, decision that they made for me as parents, I would say. Why? Uh, I think because I just had, like, cross-cultural relationships for the first time in meaningful ways. And so, I mean, it, you know, optional school has all kinds of problems in it, but you also just have a lot of different kids with a lot of different backgrounds in a building together. And like kids are kids and they'll make fr- friends with whomever. And so yeah. I would just say, like I know my whole view of Memphis, how I relate to people, I mean, how I interact with culture, a lot of that, that goes back to, to White Station. And also it's like some of my deepest friendships are with girls I went to high school with too. Yeah. Well, and I feel like your your graduating class or the people that you were there with have now like taken ownership of the city. Yeah, it's definitely <laughs> like, like you look around and you're like, "Oh, I know you. I know you." <laughs> so, um when you're getting done with school and you're trying to figure out now where to go to college, um how was there was there any kind of family pressure on you to go any particular place or were you kind of free to just go wherever you got in what was that process like for you and why why did you choose where you chose um i would say in my family like the greatest idol is education like you learning itself is important but like sort of academic elitism is ingrained deeply in my family and all of the competition and shame and anxiety that <laughs> comes with that Um, and so in my family, it was sort of like, you'll go to the best school that you get into. And that was like, you know, among the top schools in the country. Um, but, and so I wanted to, but it wasn't exactly the same as all my siblings, but when it came down to it, I was deciding between Duke and Rice and Northwestern and Georgetown. And the honest truth is I chose Duke because they had the best basketball team. (laughs) So I always tell people I made my college based on basketball. And you know I'm not even five feet tall. So people are like, And if you leave that to the imagination, people are going to be like, my God, she must be amazing at basketball. Amazing. (laughs) Amazing. And actually the best high school uh, girl in my uh, high school was Simone uh, Mizell, whose family goes to fellowship. Her brother goes to fellowship. And she's oh, about wow. my size, and she's freaking amazing. So. Oh wow! Okay. Well, yeah, Mugsy, Mugsy Bogues, and all that. We've we, there's a long all history of, of shorties doing well. Life. Yeah. Um, okay, so when you when you get to Duke, what what changed about you? Like, what? How did how did Duke shape you? And what were the things that you kind of left there with that you had not come in with? Um, I think there are sort of two big things. Um, well, well, three things really. Um, I was a history major and I discovered just a love of learning on a whole new level, like just learning for learning's sake. And it was sort of freed of the academic elitism and the pressure um, of being in school to be perfect. 
yeah. and being in school to learn at the highest levels. Um, it was a, a rough transition with a lot of counseling along the way, but that would be like a long-term um, impact of that. Um, the second was it like exploded my worldview. I was a part of the Navigators um, Fellowship at, at yeah. Duke, which was it's a really diverse and internationally diverse group. And so just sort of blew my understanding of God's heart for the world um, and busted sort of ideas of American exceptionalism for me from a faith perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, the third thing was it, I started out interested in education and then quit because for a lot of reasons. Um, and then um, Durham, Durham and Memphis are really, really similar in a lot of ways. Durham's a lot smaller than Memphis, but um, yeah. just was able to have experiences with kids in my youth group and with and student. What sort of came back to the idea of education um, and just education as a means of equity um, for cities and for for individuals and for like cities creating equity within cities um, would be sort of a third thing I learned in college. Yeah. Okay, so when you're starting to get close to being done, well, at first, at what point did you get involved with SOS? Was that during college? Yeah, or that was them in high school at all. Yeah, I was peripherally involved in high school between my sophomore and junior year in college. I was on summer staff, and that was again sort of understanding of God's heart for the poor and what it means to be a follower of Jesus in that way was certainly yeah. a part of SOS. Yeah, and that was some big part of our family. Yeah. And obviously at some point that becomes not just following Jesus, but also following a guy that you had met there as well. Yeah. This <laughs> tall, skinny, cute guy with a funny accent. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Dan, <laughs> God bless him. Uh, I literally, I met, so two funny stories about Dan, my husband, uh, are, we, we met the very first day at SOS at Holiday Ham and Deli right there at Poplar and Aaron was the like meet and greet. And I could not, couldn't remember his name, and he thought I was some just crazy jerk because um, I couldn't remember him. Just you know, far for the course. And then he really caught my attention when he knew the names of all of the tools in the toolbox the next day. That was what really won me over and got me. That's so awesome. Oh man. And so did y'all wait, how long before y'all started dating? Did y'all start dating during that summer at all? Or was that you started dating at the end of that summer, yeah. Okay. Um, and how, how long did y'all date before you got married? That's a good question. Uh, five years. Yeah. Okay. We That's dated wow. for two okay. years during college and grad school and then two years, well, three years out. So, yeah. Okay. I right, got it. So you get done with Duke and then you, did you come straight back to Memphis after that? Yeah. I came straight back to Memphis and taught middle school at White Station Middle School, my alma mater. Okay. And then we had been dating for a year and I realized I didn't like teaching middle school. And so we didn't, we were dating. We had been dating for three years at that point and didn't sort of really know if we wanted to get married. And so I moved, I have family in Michigan, which is where he was living and where he's from. And so I moved up to Michigan for a couple of years and worked in, I had sort of sworn off education, um, mostly because I didn't like middle schoolers, what I I discovered. Um, And I worked I just they're just they're like two-year-olds two-year-olds and 12-year-olds just not for me. just work through those phases it'll be fine um but so I sort of leaned into community development I worked for two different community development corporations okay um when I was in Detroit and then when we got married 
we came to back to Memphis, it was sort of like, do we stay in Detroit? Do we go back to North Carolina to the Triangle area or come back to Memphis? Which are the three places that we sort of had family or friend bases and opportunities yeah. for jobs. And we decided that Memphis was the best place to um for our family and our faith and our jobs, it just made the most sense. Yeah. Okay. So when you moved back, um, how long was it before you got involved with MTR? And then um, how, how was it different moving back as an adult after being gone for some time or, or, or did it feel pretty natural? Um, it was different. It, it was sort of both. Um, so when I moved, first moved back to Memphis, um, we were living in Binghampton um right near where SOS is um that was really important to us being sort of part of intentional community um and so that felt really that was what my experience had been in Detroit too and why I'd lived in Binghamton okay out of college so that was a, a pillar of our sort of beginning marriage um another so I was working at Grizzlies Academy which is different what than Grizzlies Prep is now Grizzlies Academy is an was an overage for grade high school, and so I was teaching high school to like eighteen and nineteen year olds, um, which was super fun. Um, and I discovered I did like teaching, and I did like kids. It's just not the twelve year old variety. That's awesome. That's awesome. And so yeah, so that sort of and then so Grizzlies Academy as a school closed, and I was pregnant, and sort of at the same time. And so that's when I came and MT, and when MTR had just started. So I came to MTR that was in 2010. So ten, I'm finishing my 10th year uh, working at MTR this summer or this spring. Yeah. That's awesome. And what, what drew you to MTR and why, why did you believe that was worth your time getting involved in it? Um, MTR was, I would say two things. The mission of MTR is, um, Christian love expressed in equal education. And that seemed like a marriage of sort of what I learned it knew about believed it about community development and about education as a road to equity. Um, and yeah. then the mission of, or the mission of MTR, or the vision of MTR, I get too confused is restored communities living with dignity and in peace. And that was just, okay. um, that's always been an image, like a strong a biblical image to me of what rest, restored communities looks like. I mean, yeah. so, and I also, realizing the difficulties of being a teacher really, really strongly wanted to be part of supporting teachers so they could be more effective. And so yeah. all of that sort of came together at the same time. Okay. So for those who don't have a framework for kind of what MTR does or, or why there's even a need for that to begin with, like what, what was the need in Memphis uh, like and why did, why did MTR need to be here? Why was it important work that you were a part of? my favorite um so <laughs> bye Amy love you um so MD, so Memphis has about 150,000 school-aged children and you can go to memphisgr.org to see all the stats but essentially 80 percent of third graders aren't on track to read which means they're not on track to graduate which is means they're not on track to to work behind beyond school, which means they're they are on track to live below the poverty line. So the overwhelming majority of third graders now are on track to live below the poverty line as adults. Um, and just realizing that um, 
a that's like something that's personally growing up in a family and with a background where education was really important um yeah. it was important to me to be involved in that work and to as a I think as a person of faith um I believe that God is most present among the most vulnerable and so if I'm looking at Memphis and I want to be about the work of God um all I need to look is who's who is the most vulnerable and how can I partner with them to create equity yeah 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 so you've been so in your 10 years there is there something that you feel like was um has been most transformative in you seeing that work on the ground like are there is there something that you feel like man when, once i've once i can look back now i can see this one side of me really developed in this work or um i see like this big part of this work in particular is is most important like what what have you learned during your time yeah. there i think and this is um I would say there's this idea of dignity and that like the resources are in the resources exist already within communities. Um, so like I said, the vision of MTR is restored communities living with dignity and in peace. And I remember one time when I was teaching and teaching um, high school girls who are over age for grade, overwhelmingly they have these just incredibly traumatic, sad stories and yeah walking with some of the students I had at Grizzlies, I remember having a conversation actually with David Montague, who's the director of MTR, my boss now. Like if you could give your kids one thing, one resource, if you could change one thing for them, what would it be? And I remember telling him dignity. Like I just wish I could give young women dignity. Um, And so it's like they have this inherent value and they have so many skills and powers and talents and beauty like they have so much potential and that's actually like within them they just don't believe it and like this like the idea of dignity to being this missing piece um i think that's like and i i've seen that realized over and over and over and so as i work with teachers if we can figure out how to like just convince kids or even to get them to imagine their own dignity um, it unlocks yeah. all of these other pathways. And I would say, you know, I do this gun violence prevention work too. Um, and one of the things we're learning about city gun violence is all these things that work. Um, and one of the biggest things that work to stop city gun violence is um, like working with those at, at greatest risk of being victims or perpetrators of gun violence. Um, and interrupting violence, like before it even starts, um, like building up communities. And what I've learned is there's all these experts and academics and policy walks who say, this is what the statistics say that actually reduces gun violence. And when you go into communities, the experts and all of those things, how to actually do them are the, the kids, the big brothers and sisters and the candy lady and the youth worker at the community center. And there's all of these like experts with this like unbelievable wealth of information, which, you know, it reduces gun violence, but it also is like these pathways to dignity for kids. And so, yeah, I would say over the last 10 years, what I've learned is that this magic solution that we're looking for is frequently already in the communities that are, that are of, have greatest poverty. But yeah. figuring out how to get the people with the money and the policy and the power 
recognizing that and making the two like that is a miracle and I that is a magic I don't know the answer to that one but I I know where it is I just don't know how to get there okay so maybe along those lines have there been moments where you've seen that work and and like what what are some of the examples of of places that you've seen that work at so maybe we can try to pour gasoline on that um so I think um one way, one place I see that working is with the work of Charlie Caswell um, in North Memphis, Frazier. Um, yeah. Charlie's, do you know Charlie? I know of him, but I would love for you to tell us about him. Um, so Charlie Caswell is a, a saint among men. Um, and he, and he's just an average guy. He's about my age, maybe a little bit younger than me. Grew up in Memphis, <clears throat> sort of you know, stereotypical Memphis background, got in trouble as a teenager. Um, but he now is a pastor and runs a community development center in Frazier. It's called Legacy of Legends CDC. And he's also trained with the ACES Foundation, which um, ACES are adverse childhood experiences. It's just, um, it's a way of measuring and uh, directing childhood trauma. Yeah. and are treating or approaching childhood trauma. And so Charlie, um, I coached some teachers at MLK Prep, and uh, which is the old Fraser High for people who are familiar with Memphis. And they have some of the most traumatic, most difficult stories. The culture in the school is um, just sort of staggeringly bad compared to a lot of schools. That, and I've been in a lot of schools over the last 17 years. Yeah. Um, but his ability to come in and talk with kids, students and administrators and teachers and sort of speak almost like a tr as a translator, speak the language and the needs of each to the other is, um, and I think it's like an untapped resource, but I, the way that I've, it's funny, I'll tell teachers, you need to call Charlie Caswell, connect with him. He knows your kids. If you call him, it'll help you and then and then i'll say okay fine i'll call him and then you know two months later i'll get like charlie caswell was in the school and he was awesome i was like oh what is he now tell me tell me about it what did he do that was helpful <laughs> which is a little bit did you hear about him again it's like oh, amazing dude <laughs> you check your email two months ago his phone number is in your email address or in your email account but which is fine <laughs> you know whatever sure but, Right. <laughs> it is fun to see, uh, and I think that that's an undeveloped resource, um, but I think that's like an example of how the church and the community and the school and uh, can just sort of come together to, to work for each other's, everyone's success and good. Yeah. Okay, so you, you got involved um, a few years ago with the Moms Man Action Group. Um, yes. lobbying against gun violence and this is going to be a stupid question but why mm -hmm. <laughs> um why did you feel so compelled to get involved with that and and the reason i ask why is to, for, for you to give a framework for people at home like um you don't have any free time anyways because you're a mom of three kids and a wife and uh you work and there's you know you have a life as well so why, what was so compelling about the cause that you felt like it was worth rearranging your life to, to give a portion of it to this cause? Um, that's a great question. I would say there's four reasons, really. 
Um, the first is my, well, my dad, I grew up with my dad running the trauma center. And so I saw, I mean, it was very common at my dinner table for surgeons to talk about gunshot wounds at the dinner table. Um, so I just was sort of always aware my background noise was talking about gun violence in Memphis growing up. Okay. Okay. Um, in the way that like farmer's daughters probably are, you know, crops rotations or whatever, whatever it'll, that background sort of conversation is. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I was just always aware of that. And, and the longer I realized that sort of Memphis was my place, um, the more I cared about it's our own particular issues. Um, yeah. The other part of that would be that when I was teaching in Memphis, um, I walked none of, fortunately when I was teaching, none of my, students were actually shot and killed although I've walked that with a lot of teachers over the last few years Mm -hmm. um but I watched them walk through death rituals so like you know somebody that they grew up with or were cousins with or friends with would be shot and killed and everybody knew what to do in the same way that we would like get ready for prom it's like oh you buy a picture with the airbrush t-shirt and you pick the color that's going to be the funeral color and everybody gets this and then this day we do this and we have a vigil here. And then we, and and so just realizing that gun violence for my students and for my neighbors, because I was living in New Hampton at the time and walked, walked through this with my across the street neighbor, just realized that like gun violence was so normalized in our city and for the kids and for my students and neighbors that it was just, just bizarre um, and not okay. But it like had become normalized, but it was not okay. That makes sense. And then honestly, when May started public school in pre-K, she came home from school talking about this game they'd played in the uh, bathroom one day and that they had all to go to the bath, go, go, go in the bathroom. And they played this copycat silent game with their teacher and their teacher, they had to be totally silent and their teacher would do something silly and they would do it back. What I realized is she didn't know it because she was four, but she was describing a lockdown drill to me. Yeah. Yeah. And I just sort of realized for my, you know, I saw, I was affected by my neighbors and students sort of becoming normalized to gun violence, but also my own kids who have all of the privilege in the world to sort of protect them from that. It was also a normal part of their sort of American child experience. And that was, um, that sort of those two factors were my sort of, this can't go on anymore. And at the same time, Moms Demand Action was just getting started. Um, Moms Demand Action started. Um, as a Facebook page um, at in Indi- a mom in Indianapolis after the Sandy Hook shooting um, started it as what can I do to stop gun violence? And she wanted to, um, she organized a Facebook page with a goal of organizing a million moms and passing a universal background checks bill. Um, and so that's how they started in Tennessee in 2015 we passed guns in parks so that in the state of Tennessee, a municipality cannot disallow guns from public spaces, from city parks. And so that was sort of the legislative action that really was the catalyst for Moms Demand Action's growth in Tennessee. Um, Yeah. And sort of that coincided with my own kids starting school. Um, And so that was sort of the perfect storm that got me off my couch and um, take doing something. And so in particular, what, what are you doing now to help with them and, and how, like, what does that look like on a daily basis? Yeah. So 
Right now, I'm the uh, chapter leader for the state of Tennessee. So Moms Demand Action has chapters in all 50 states, and we have about 6 million supporters across the country. And so in Tennessee, there are about 12,000 um, supporters of Moms Demand Action. That's anyone who's ever taken an action, signed an online petition, or attended a meeting, or taken any sort of action is how we count that. And then we have a leadership group of 153 moms across the state and dads. I'd say also that we're mothers and others. We sort of, we're led mostly by women um, and we're started by a mom, but it's a movement of all kinds of people. Um, so I would sort of add that disclaimer. Yeah. So yeah. I lead, um, there are 11 local groups across the state and I help coordinate their leadership. And um, what we do is we lobby uh, for common sense gun bills in the state legislature and we work with local groups. So right now we're working on a coalition here in Memphis um, to reduce city gun violence, to bring community partners together who all are stakeholders in reducing gun violence. Um, we do a lot of public education campaigns about gun safety, sort of, if, you're, if you choose to have a firearm in your home, um, what can you do to safely secure it so that kids um, don't access it and so that you're yeah. aware of the risk of suicide because of the presence of a gun in the home? And so we do a lot of public education um, also around gun safety. We are very much like pro sec, like we believe it's possible to support the second amendment and the right to bear arms, but also bear them responsibly in a way that is for the public good of all. Yeah. Okay. So that's, that's a lot. <clears throat> it's a lot <laughs> that you have going on, right? <laughs> you know. Um, what's, uh, Maybe the best next question is, um, what is something that has made you extremely happy lately that you've seen in this city? And then something that's made you extremely mad lately that you've seen <laughs> in this city? In this city. Um, I think the thing that makes me extremely happy right now is, I think particularly in this moment of this COVID-19 crisis is, um, and this is a very Memphis thing is resilience. Um, yeah. and working like the last two weeks I've been on the phone with teachers thinking of how do we connect with students and how do we like a connect them with resources, but also how do we continue to engage them with the learning that they were like, literally created for? Like, it's not just what can they get to eat, but like, I believe sort of my philosophy of learning is that God creates learning as a way for us to know him. Like, as we learn, we will create, like recognize who created us. And so as teachers, like we have this pathway as we build critical thinkers and readers and learners and questioners, like we're literally creating access to truth and to worship just by activating kids' minds and pushing them. And so Man. thinking about how kids, how teachers can connect with students and with all of the limitations and also like continue to give them that access. Um, yeah. And just watching teachers and watch, and, and watch hearing stories of parents who are um, frequently like dismissed from the conversation, like heavily invested in their kids learning. And actually yeah. this shift in the pattern and routines has like created pathways for parents to be involved in kids learning, even in yeah. high needs, um, high poverty, uh, low literacy homes, parents are 
sort of having these new uh, ex educational experiences with their kids. And I think that, I mean, that's such a Memphis thing, right? Like the whole grit yeah. and grind, resilient, like we are a resilient city. It, throughout our history, we have over and over and over stories of resilience. And I would say that this moment in the city, and that is certainly not to dismiss the inequity, like <laughs> it should not be this way. We should already have a plan. But <laughs> within the injustice, it brings me hope that people are resilient for their kids and for education. Is one connected to the other? Is the happiness now connected to the anger as well? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which brings me to, <laughs> yes. You see how I segued there? <laughs> I um, love it. <laughs> I think particularly the thing that is making me the most angry right now is those who are in power who are generally only convenienced by this crisis hmm. making policy and directions whether they're at every level of government making directions and policy or um, even like people in the workforce people who are leading businesses making decisions and suggestions based on their own experience and yeah. being totally blind to the fact that their experience is not the majority experience and like not meeting the real needs of people who are most affected um and like people like that like that whose success is most important for the like for all of us like if just the wealthy and privileged get through this like that's not actually okay and actually they will eventually suffer it might take yeah. a while but like we all like our success is bound up on and the success of every single person in our community and so um i think the thing that i've been angriest about in the last two weeks is just for those without margin, how this is completely devastating. And for those with margin, we get all this, I, and I do the same thing and it's actually helpful, like how to spend time, how to, what to bake, what to, how to help your kids. And that's true, but right. there's also a huge blind spot and it's helpful. Like it's yeah. like literally <clears throat> legitimately helpful, but right. also that without the awareness of, sort of everybody who doesn't get to choose what to bake or whether yeah. or not they go to work or yeah. which screen they should give their kid from 10 to one is or two anyway. or three. <laughs> the gap is yeah. overwhelmingly frustrating. Yeah. 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 Um, okay. Before we go, a couple, a couple other questions. Like I said at the beginning of the podcast, you're one of the people that we always go to for uh, restaurant recommendations or talk about food that's happening in the city. Um, what's your favorite place that you ate at before getting locked down? Um, and then what has been something that, um, well, let me, let me start there. What was your favorite place that you've eaten at recently before quarantine happened? So my favorite place recently has been Puck Food Hall. Um, uh -huh. a little biased because my brother uh, makes the pizza there at Dojo, um, but well, he got laid off this week, so he doesn't anymore. Uh -huh. um, but a, I think it's the best pizza in town, and it's just a fun place to hang out and go. Um, we can get a beer or coffee, and the kids can get gelato, and somebody can get tacos, and somebody can get pasta, and it's yeah. all just great, reasonably affordable food. Um, yeah. And just a fun time to be down by the river downtown and walk around. So that's my current favorite Memphis eating, well, pre, pre COVID-19 eating place. Yeah. See if um, it's still after. I, no, I'll vouch for the pizza because you, you told us about 
dojo pizza and we we went down and got some and it was unbelievable um yes. and so that that doesn't help people now that your brother's not there yes. anymore i know um, well he'll probably he'll be back if they he's furloughed whatever that means once life starts uh, again yeah, yeah yes. the yeah, breakfast yeah. pizza especially would be my top recommendation it's okay okay good to know and then uh has there been anything this past week that um was amazing that happened at your house like you guys made something great or um you know what what are you guys doing to stay sane during during so much home time so much home time <laughs> um i think uh the church answer is we've been celebrating lent in our own way um and it's been really sort of a sweet time for our family um and, and that's true and it's been really fun i think yeah. A, just being outside has been pretty awesome. I think the two kid-centered things um, are um, my seven-year-old is obsessed. David is obsessed with paper airplanes right now. And so he's been madly making paper airplanes of all shapes and sizes. And he gets online and makes all. And then they get, the kids and Dan will like go outside and see who can shoot it the farthest. And they make that's these awesome. charts and they tweak them. So that's been really fun. Uh, my current favorite school school project is we're building a town and uh, each kid's building these little, little different elements of it. And so um, they, and it's, it's really one of the, one of the tasks is everybody had to make a monument. And so they had to choose, when we talk about as history teachers, we talk about like, what do we want to remember? What do we want to honor in a, in a community? And what we choose to honor like reflects our values and what we, what we care about, how we want to be in a, in a community. Huh. And so um, we've been talking about that. It's been really interesting to see each kid and what they chose. And it's like right. so perfect. Like May chose my oldest. Hers is e equality for all park. And her monument is, awesome. they have to do a bark and a monument. And they have, her monument is a giant uh, Supreme Court gavel with eye descent on the side because she's obsessed with Ruth and Peter Ginsburg. <laughs> which I just adored. I was like, all, all of the gold stars. I, you may just be doing this to, you know, butter me up for more Girl Scout cookies. But sure. It's they're, working. They're <laughs> uh, and so, and then David's, David's is really sweet. His, the person he chose to honor is Vincent Van Gogh. And oh, um, because right. he read him about him in a book and he, David has a lot of big feelings that he doesn't quite know how to handle. And he also loves art. And so he read in a book essentially that Vincent Van Gogh made art to process his feelings. And that was an outlet for them. So, and that was why I chose him. And I was like, well, that's really beautiful. I did not yeah. tell him that Vincent Van Gogh died of suicide at like 37. So oh, God, we're going to just keep that on the DL. <laughs> to make more art, I think. Sure. Yeah. I love the inspiration. And then uh, Cora's, Cora, who is just, well, you know Cora, but for your oh, yeah. listeners. She's yes. the happiest child in the universe. Uh, hers, she has Friendship Park, and her monument is a globe with kids holding hands all around the globe, which is just very Cora. <laughs> she has that a garden awesome. in her park and a pond, but it's been really fun to see. Just, it's been fun to sort of be part of their learning in yeah. ways that I don't get a chance to during the normal pace of life, which again is a yeah. privilege, but it's. It's a privilege I'm not taking for granted, which I think yeah, is for sure. I'm trying to sit right now is recognize our privilege um, 
and enjoying and being grateful for the time that we have while also remembering and working on behalf of people who aren't as privileged. Yeah. 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 That's awesome. That's awesome. All right. Last question before we go, I've been asking um, some of our guests, what, uh, what would you want to either the old classic question, what would you want to either go back and tell yourself as Uh a young adult um, to better prepare you for this season or, um, or what advice would you have for those that are kind of in that season of life and, um, and are, are working toward, you know, the, the stage of life that we're in now, like, what would you have wanted to know or what would you tell them at this point? Um, so many things. Um, <laughs> I think what I would like to say that my answer today is, uh, be gracious, but not lazy. Um, and so what I mean by that is that a lot of times we can hold ourselves to too high standards or take in all of these inputs about what we should be or whether it's social media or from boss or family or friends or whatever it is, or even scripture, if we're reading it with a certain mindset. Um, but to be gracious for our, with ourselves and others um, and to assume the best in that, like we're, we're all sort of trying, not maybe not all of us, but overwhelmingly people are just trying to do the right thing yeah. um, and get by. But I think that the, the downside of that is to do nothing and to let anything go. And so I think that there's this balance of while you're being gracious to yourself and to others, like have expectations, hold hope. Um, and there's this balance of like, there's, you know, so many scriptures where God says like rest and essentially I'll fight the battle for you. I'll do the work for you over and over and over. He says this to his people. Um, and I think there's like rest in that, but also like, they're able to rest because they've showed up for the battle. And so yeah. he doesn't say like, stay home and I'll do it. He says, <laughs> like, Come put on all the armor, get all ready, right. walk around the city, do all the things, be in training, walk across this continent. Yeah. He doesn't say and that. I'll be you know. your fuel. Yes. Yeah. He says like, show up and then I'll, and then I'll be there. And then I'll, I'll take care of it. And so yeah. I think that I, I need both. I, I, and I still need, but certainly in my twenties needed to hear both of that. Like you don't have to do all of the things, but you, you do need to, sh- you need to show up and be present. Yeah. That's so good. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, those are all the things I did not do during that phase of life. It's just correcting those mistakes. Um, <laughs> I know we've talked a, a bunch of different times about uh, the other piece of advice that we both assigned to people is just um, just get married as fast as you can um, with whoever's <laughs> available at the moment and just kind of lock that down because you can't be happy otherwise. Oh, yeah, definitely don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> I always tell people, and I love and adore my husband, but I always tell people, yes. I wish I hadn't met him until I was 30. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I mean, you know, me and you know, Elizabeth and what, like, that's not, that's not how I feel. Like I'm still like at 22, even when I go back, I'd still be like, okay, can we get married? Can we get married? Let's get married. Let's get married. Let's get married. Um, but it, it was, 
it was that that was the person like that was my person like that and, and once I saw that uh it unlocked this whole different side of me that was able to like to then do all the hard work required with getting married at that age and um and not being ready for life yet <laughs> and all of that I was I was willing to do it because I had found the right person so anyways um that's awesome well Kat thank you so much for for just like unpacking all that for us and sharing with us today and um yeah. and uh tell us where we can find um, information on on what you're doing with moms and, and where we can find information on MTR. So online uh, at momsdemandaction.org. And if you want to follow specifically our work in Tennessee, we're on Facebook at Moms Demand Action Tennessee. Okay. And on um, for MTR, you can go to memphistr.org and check. And we're on you know all of the things. Memphis TR is the social media handle for all Got of it. the different um, platforms. Awesome. Well, Kat McRitchie, thank you so much. We'll talk to you soon. Take care. <laughs> A comment. One day. A comment. One day.